And we don't rely just on the 300 pages of Torah or the 1,200 pages of what some might call the Old Testament. That we rely on the 2,900 pages after that and the 10,000 pages after that to understand what is this talking about. So when we read a very uncomfortable verse, we can read so from 3,000 years, 2,000 years, 500 and now, and they're all equally valid readings given where we are. listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And my favorite verse from the Bible is Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my favorite Bible verse is Ecclesiastes 10.19. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money answers everything. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel, Hendersonville, North Carolina, and one of my favorite verses is 1 Kings 19 verse 11 which says, come out and stand on the mountain before Adonai. And lo, Adonai passed by. There was a great and mighty wind, splitting the mountains and shattering rocks by the power of Adonai. But Adonai was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But Adonai was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Adonai was not in the fire. And after the fire, a soft murmuring sound. Uh, Adam Pryor. Uh, I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. Uh... I don't really have a favorite verse, so I picked one at random, which is one of only three that I know. So I chose one of them. Uh, in this case, I decided to go with John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University. And one of my favorites is Ezekiel 23, verses 20 through 21 feel like I should give context before I read this out loud. Nope. No, 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 just no, read just it. Read it. <laughs> All right. There she lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose emission was like that of horses. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breasts fondled. And there you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There is context. Ezekiel is nuts. I feel self-interpreting. <laughs> Ezekiel is such a fun book. What's the context? <laughs> yeah. Give us some context, Kendra. What are you um, describing for us? Well, you know, besides, Why is this a besides the beautiful display of words in those verses, uh, whenever <laughs> my husband and I got married, some friends, when they decorated the car that we drove away in, put Ezekiel 23, 20 through 21 <laughs> on the car. And most people at the wedding saw that and thought, oh, such holy people with the scripture verse on their car. And then when they went home to look it up, were most likely horrified. And so it was the little joke that our friends uh, decided to play on us and for us. And yeah, it's a great verse. That's uh. Was it one of the the writing like the did they use something 
where it stayed on your car for a little while? Like you couldn't get it off right away? Um, yeah, it's like whatever the, the normal wedding car paint utensil yeah. was. So you had to drive we, around we with left that it on your for car. a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, all of these will be in our show notes. So you too can read them, enjoy them, and uh, put them on your car. <laughs> oh man um the bible is not a safe book is it it uh oh man i'll tell you there are a lot of people i know who think about the bible as like a series of bumper stickers or greeting cards or happy inspirational memory verses with some genealogies in between them and that is not the case as just just evidence from right here. And I think if you were to try to sanitize the Bible, it would be very short, probably. <laughs> uh, this is my problem with every kid's Bible. And we've we've gone through quite a few where my wife and I are both pastors and we have two kids. And so a lot of people have gifted us with my first children's Bible. And they all have like the same 12 very sanitized stories about Noah's Ark with the happy animals and not any of the bloated floating corpses around them. Um, they all have like this Adam and Eve that are happy and whatever. There's nothing about death. There's never any Cain and Abel, though I did find a coloring book one time in my church that had a Cain and Abel coloring page. That was pretty horrifying. Um, Our New Testament professor used the martyrs coloring book in her class. It was like a signed reading. <clears throat> it was uh, it was amazing. That's dark. Yeah, a lot of red. <laughs> <laughs> I I use the um, awkward children's Bible stories not typically found in your children's Bible. There's a Lego Bible. Oh where yes, this guy made Lego scenes of the Bible, and he's yes. really a believer. He's an atheist. Yep, and made it a little antagonistically and all of the reviews if you look on amazon they're hilarious because it's like i bought this for my grandson's christening and then it was full of horrible things and because and the best part is it's just full of the bible like they didn't change yep. any of the stories they just made like lego versions of <laughs> fields of blood and <laughs> dragons and conquest and Ezekiel 20 whatever but it's not sanitized that's right because it's not a safe book and that has been I I try to tell people when I'm teaching them especially when I'm teaching New Testament that this book got a lot of people killed and it didn't get people killed because it's full of helpful hints of being a nicer person. <laughs> it got people killed because it's dangerous and it's subversive and it overturns power structures. And I mean that at <laughs> one of the first uh, days, one of the first interactions I ever had with Rachel was when I said something about how <laughs> I think I was describing the tattoos on my wrist, which yep. are two Bible verses, which should have been my favorite Bible verses, I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, they are permanently on your body. They are permanently there. Maybe that's why I take them for granted that the one says 
um, for he spoke and all things came into being. And the other one says, behold, I'm making all things new. It's, and I said that it's a reminder that the Bible starts and ends with creation and not with destruction. And Rachel just was like, and whose Bible is that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, the Bible. The Bi-. And she's like, my Bible doesn't end that way. Was, like, <laughs> was that during our very first our first gathering i remember that conversation and thinking to myself man i'm gonna love this these people (laughs) total chutzpah dick this is gonna be so much fun that in that moment i realized like i'm not actually very good at interfaith dialogue am i in my mind i am turns out in reality i I have a lot of blind spots so i've learned to be a lot more careful and i'm gonna try to be real Mm. careful in my uh, in my verbiage today as well, uh, yeah. in not only talk, trying not to say things like Old Testament, but also in the way that I talk about the history of slavery and the ways that the Bible was mm-hmm. used there, because it was just brought to my attention just like three days ago that when we say things like the slave master and the slave mm-hmm. and the uh, they were forced to do this they were sold into this we're sanitizing that language and making it a lot more palatable to uh, to talk about the history when if it were happening today we would call them human traffickers and we would talk about torture and murder and kidnapping uh, and rape yeah we would call it what it is and not the sanitized forms so i'm gonna try to do that. I'm going to try to not sanitize anything that I have to say today um, because we're talking about those things today. We're talking about the Bible, specifically the Hebrew and Christian scriptures and how they have been used to both suppress and how the in just in their usage, they are unable to keep people down for long. Uh, that's one of the beauties of these particular scriptures is that when the people who are oppressed get a hold of it, they realize that it's actually much more about liberation written by people who were oppressed. And the whole story of scripture is freedom and liberation. And so it can't be used for long to hold people down, not genuinely anyway. And so at the beginning here, I wanted to tell a story. A story about a woman that I learned about in seminary that I had never heard about before, who is perhaps the most important, the most influential missionary in the Western world, that I, whose name I had never heard before and have not heard much about. She has one biography that was written, which is called uh, Rebecca's Revival. Any of you familiar with this book? We're shaking our heads, which you can't actually see. Well, I would advise any of our listeners who are interested should pick up this book. Um, Her name was Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Freudlich Proton. Both of those names come from her two husbands because she was born a she was born an enslaved person and so was not given a last name. Her enslaver called her Sally when she was young. She was kidnapped from uh, from Antigua, where she was born in the 1720s, and was moved to St. Thomas, which was one of the most brutal places in these sugar plantations where uh, 10 million people were kidnapped and forced to work in these death camps where the the living conditions were just so brutal that people 
didn't live for more than a year at most at a time. <laughs> I mean, they worked people to death. They didn't feed them or give them water. They gave them a plot of land by their slave quarters where they were allowed to raise their own crops by night after having worked all day in the sugar <laughs> plantations. And so what little they had, they had to work for after they had been working all day in the sweltering Caribbean heat. And all for sugar, by the way, which nobody needs. It's not a staple. It, it doesn't actually help you. Sugar is a luxury food. It's what people put in tea to <laughs> and, and to make cakes and pies and like luxury foods. But people didn't want to know the the really really horrific underbelly of what propped up that entire industry so when she was a little girl she was brought into the the house of her enslaver and was made to do you know menial house tasks and whatnot and while she was in there she was taught to read uh, as as some people were and she would learn how to read by reading the bible which is a dangerous thing to do, to give to a person who has been enslaved. Because mm -hmm. I don't know if you noticed, but it, it you get pretty quickly, if you're starting at the beginning, to slaves being freed. Mm -hmm. It kind of happens in book number two. <laughs> and the entire book of Exodus, right, is about people being freed from bondage and how God is the God of the enslaved and is really not too fond of the enslavers and the kidnappers. And so after her enslaver died, the patriarch of that family, they freed her. And they a part of that was because she had become a Christian. And there's this long history in the Christian church about what to do with a slave when they become a Christian, because we have this troubling letter in the New Testament called uh, Philemon. And the story of Philemon is this, is that there was a a runaway slave, as best we know, named Onesimus, who had joined Paul and had tended to Paul, had converted, and had become a dear friend and member. And Paul was sending him back to his enslaver and sending him back with this letter that was super passive aggressive because Paul was not necessarily anti-slavery, unfortunately. But he was anti-Onesimus being enslaved because he was now our brother and not, not just a slave. And you need to accept him as a brother and don't punish him for running away. And, you know, I could command you to do these things because of who I am, me being Paul, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to passively aggressively tell you, you know, the way that like a good father would where they'd be like, <laughs> well, I can't tell you what to do, but I can just hope that you'll do the right thing. <laughs> and so we have no idea what happened, but we have this troubling book in the New Testament. And so people are quite, weren't quite sure what to do in those days. And so this person decided to set her free. And so she went around St. Thomas with this evangelical fire inside of her because she discovered this God of freedom and liberation within the stories of scripture. It's throughout the whole thing. And so she started preaching and the people she was preaching to, the um, kidnapped, enslaved, tortured people on the plantations didn't want to hear about it because Christianity is the religion of the oppressors. In fact, the oppressors had cherry-picked verses from it. You know, slaves obey your masters as to the Lord. 
uh, verses like that, verses in Leviticus about how exactly to make slaves and what to do with them. There's all over the place. You can cherry pick these verses all over the place. And people have in order to justify slavery. And so the, the people obviously didn't want to hear about it because this these this was the religion that was used to suppress them and to force them to forget their native spirituality. But she kept she kept pushing because she had she had found a sense of liberation in these scriptures. And so she started holding midnight church services in hmm. secret churches. Because every time the plantation owners would find one of these churches, they'd burn it down. So then she'd move to another place and through word of mouth would get people to come to that place. And there were like uh, slave owner sanctioned preachers who would preach from these slave Bibles, which there's one of these slave Bibles in the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., which don't go to, by the way awful place horrible scholarship <laughs> all of their dead sea scrolls are forgeries and so many of the artifacts that they've gotten they stole got right? through really bad channels and indirectly funded terrorism um yeah. it's the people who who own hobby lobby and they just did some really bad and we're not looking bad. for their endorsement so it'll be okay no i they would not give me their <laughs> i'm just telling wouldn't you wouldn't even ask Yep. Um, but you can look up the slave Bible, which ha- cut out every reference to liberation and freedom and and um, emancipation, and just left out, just left in those passages about being good servants. Yep. So the 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 white owners, the slave masters, they they wanted to teach from these books, and she was giving them the pure, unadulterated good stuff. And she was teaching people how to read and how to do their own their own studies. And she was teaching people how to create their own churches. And it was starting to spread around St. Thomas. And she was helped by the Moravian Church, which is one of the many, 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 many uh, Christian denominations out there. And in 1746, she was ordained by them, which makes her the first woman of color to ever be ordained in a Christian uh, denomination, as far as we know. And even they told her, hold up, please don't, please preach a little quieter because uh, all the white plantation owners are worried that you are going to spark a, a rebellion with your uh, your teaching, which she's just teaching the Bible. And when you <laughs> teach the Bible to people who are oppressed, it's kind of inevitable that they're going to want freedom, <laughs> the, the sorts of things that are promised within it. And so they had a hard time catching her until she married this man named uh, Matthias, who was a missionary and was white. And she being black, that was illegal. Yep. And they were imprisoned. And had it not been for this Dutch lord who sent all of this money and an angry letter to the manager to get them (laughs) out, then she may have died in prison. But when they got out, she kept going and she kept going and she kept going. And the, the sorts of churches and the spirituality that she was creating on this island, which started island hopping, by the way, because she was creating more missionaries to go to the other islands, 
Um, it was this, this spirituality that was around liberation. You know, during the day, they were dehumanized and they were made to feel like cattle and like they were worth nothing, worth less than machines. But at night, they started forming these, these tight, this honorific community. They called each other brother and sister and, treated each other with respect and found the dignity that belongs to each and every single human being that comes through the stories of scripture and the convictions that she found within Christianity that was given uh, to her in those in those pages and in that teaching. And she was just a teenager, <laughs> by the way. And Eventually, she traveled off to uh, Germany with her husband because he got sick. And despite the fact that she was this total badass missionary woman, she still had to follow her husband when he wanted to go follow some job prospects. And she got married again, and that guy died, and she kind of died off in, off in Europe in relative obscurity. Um, but the work that she started in St. Thomas spread to the other islands and it eventually spread onto the mainland and this whole liberative spirituality that comes out of of Christianity out in in the black church that is just so liberative and these these songs and these teachings and this tradition that rereads into scripture that rebreathes that spirit back into scripture started there with this teenage girl whose name has long been forgotten to white historians. And in many ways, what she did is she brought back the spirit that was always there because the entirety of the scripture as I have it, Hebrew and Christian scriptures were written by people who were not in power, <laughs> were written by people who were actively oppressed from the outside, people who were constantly being um victims of economic and social and political powers. And so the scriptures that they wrote reflected that. And then when it was adopted in, in positions of power in Europe, especially, we had to come up with these really intricate hermeneutical justifications for why those things didn't quite apply anymore. And we had to invent persecutions because the scripture only makes sense when read through that liberative lens. And so she gave us this gift and this gift that is continually being given, um, especially through the black church in the United States, that is helping us to remember, if we'll just listen to it, helping us to remember the actual power and the profound danger to uh, white supremacy that is within the scriptures themselves. Um, and again, this book, this biography of her is definitely worth reading. Um, she is somebody who overcame all kinds of adversity and then in the end still was taken down by the patriarchy of all things with these well-meaning white uh, Christians who still wanted to tell her to, you know, take it down a notch and uh, <laughs> maybe just listen to your husband now. <clears throat> so I wanted to start us off with, with that story as an example of the ways that the scriptures and Christianity in particular were used to both keep people down and dehumanize them as well as lift them up and bring liberation into communities if if it's actually read in the proper context. Yeah, that that's a, a really powerful story and it makes me it makes me think about um, the work of W.E.B. Du Bois 
who is important and for a lot of reasons, but um, important in religious studies for helping scholars understand uh, the the social role of uh, the Black Church and. For anybody who doesn't know Du Bois, uh, he was an American sociologist um, and a historian and a civil rights activist and uh, just a, a really important figure and wrote, uh, published The Souls of Black Folk, which I think is probably the most um, popular of his works. It's like what I think is most likely to be assigned um, in a class. And um, that was published in 1903. And so he his work was especially influential and he, a lot of what he was reflecting on were the things happening in the 20th century but he uh and i think to to the story that zach just told what a lot of what du bois is reflecting on is this desire for freedom and the just the the possibilities of transformation that religion offered at the same time as it was also this imposed structure of like restriction and inhibition in a lot of ways too and I think the way Du Bois talks about uh, this idea of double consciousness is really interesting for black people and black Americans and he identifies the the black church as sort of like the social center of free expression and um, just openness for for black people living in a, a country that doesn't have a, a, a clearly cut space for them. And so his idea of double consciousness is one where um, if you are both American and also black, and again, he's especially speaking to the moments in the 20th century, that these are um, two identities that just don't work together for the people who embody them. Because on the one hand, if you are American, you're told that you are free and that you deserve freedom and that you like have this um, level of control over your life. But anyone who is Black also knows the social realities of what that means and how you are limited socially and economically and how this this like ideal of being like a free American um, has limits for black people because of white supremacy. And so Du Bois reflects how black people are constantly um, struggling with this double consciousness to to embody both like what it means to be uh, American and black. And and so he he talks a lot about the church, the African-American church as a place to have this um, like sense of freedom. And it really speaks to the adaptability of the black church as something that really has um, like taken the, the history of oppression and slavery in this country and has created a space as you see it change over the years it has it was a space where you could have a lot of like charismatic expression Du Bois he he describes like three core elements of the black church and so there's like the preacher the music and the frenzy and these are three components that are there's like a, a an adaptability in those things that black slaves when they were having to struggle with what it meant to like use Christianity which was slave owners that's that was their religion and black slaves it was not their religion and again like as Zach pointed out they were given these censored scriptures and all the 
really um, like transformative freedom promoting passages were taken out and yet it was still something that they had to reckon with and so they in their own way adapted uh, Christianity to be something that could look like freedom for them and I think just to like use an example the frenzy is um, what Du Bois describes as like being mad with supernatural joy and so it's this very like emotional experience where if you're spending all day like working at on the the fields of your slave owner then when you go to church you're able to just like let loose in complete openness with other people who share your social reality and that becomes this like charismatic experience that is really liberating and i guess like one last thing to share about that is that um, du bois also talks about over time um the abolition movement marked this really interesting change for black americans and um, black Americans who had been participating in this like black church experience where there's always this talk and preaching about freedom and like the freedom that will come in the future. And this is the space where African Americans would dream about what that would look like. But then when the abolition movement came and freedom supposedly happened, all of a sudden black people in those churches weren't like dreaming about this moment of freedom. It had come but had it come, <laughs> like there was this um, mm-hmm. transition where uh, all of this focus in hymns and in preaching about freedom suddenly seemed like something had, like that freedom had been fulfilled, but then you still had things like um, segregation and Jim Crow laws. And so again, this double consciousness was always at the center of that experience because there was just, it, there was never this like this ideal of being an American who is free is just always something that's like a, a point of tension and struggle and makes the the realities like of being a black American really complicated. And so Du Bois talks about that really beautifully for the 20th century, but obviously a lot of that's very relevant today too. Yeah, I want to, um, I think that's really, I, I love looking at what Du Bois said. I was also thinking about his relationship with Booker T. Washington and how they um, they were both fighting for the same cause in very, very different ways in late 19th, early 20th century. But this idea of freedom and what that actually looks like in America in 1852, Frederick Douglass gave his 4th of July speech of what freedom is or isn't, rather. Um, again, 1852, so slavery was still going strong. And that was just redone by his ancestors. They, they put together a video of his ancestors reciting the same thing, which here we are 170 years after it was done. And what does freedom actually look like then? So when we when we take this scripture and we get to a point of liberation, and that's what we're hoping for, what does liberation actually look like? And the, and I think that's what you were sort of saying, Kendra, is 
if it's here, but it's not really here, are we just are we just thinking about some pipe dream? Are we just thinking about some afterlife? Uh, where where is the liberation? Now, I I have to be perfectly honest. I don't um, I have not read the Christian Bible with that liberation lens. Um, I've read the Hebrew Bible with that lens. And it's a it's a setup of um, be wary of power and be wary if you have it for yourself. But it's still in the here and now. It's still it's still achievable in this life and not not relegated to some afterlife. Um, so again, I don't know if that's if that's still the same concept in the the Christian Bible. But I think that that struggle is still going on. And how do we how do we recognize that Scripture can be changed in these ways? And how do we then support the the, the readings that we want to have in there? I don't know if I'm making any sense. Yeah, it reminds me of Adam's critique of uh, apocalypticism uh, as a uh, as an yeah. escape mechanism that you don't have to worry so much now. And so much of of the Christian scriptures were f- so f- heavenly focused that they diminish the suffering of now, and they yeah. they have they ask people to wait, and that there will be the. Where there will be comeuppance in the future, and so maybe don't fight so much now. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think that's a legacy that goes away either, right? I mean, it's it's baked into certainly, I think it's fair to say, most of Protestant Christianity, whether that be evangelical Christianity or, or mainline sort of Protestant traditions, right? So, you know, I, I, I think a lot about my own traditions reconciling and, and writings uh, as they relate to freedom is highly problematic and continually problematic, right? I mean, so uh, I, I, I grew up in the LCA. I, I'm, I'm still a member of, of that Lutheran community. And Luther's writings on freedom, particularly around Galatians, are are very, very problematic uh, in, a, in our world today. Uh, he, he so, so explicitly makes freedom into this concept of something that's explicitly not political, right? I mean, he he works over and over and over again to turn it into this trope that can so easily be turned into a tool of oppression, right? So freedom becomes strangely inflicted on the bodies of the oppressed in a way that is a, a, a weapon instead of liberating, um, that's the inheritance of my tradition. So thinking through um, how to deal with that, not wanting to necessarily jettison scripture. I realize that's not what most people want to do. Um, I mean, I only have three favorite verses, so I'm kind of more okay with that maybe, but I know that's like not what most people want to do. So so like how how to take seriously that, that legacy, right, of to my mind, a place where racism is built into the structure of my tradition, mm-hmm. right? And to name it as that in the, the way that I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate Zach wanting to start by by not, not sugarcoating our language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I think that is something that we have to talk about, um, and it's not easy for people to do. Mm-mm. It makes people uncomfortable, and for those of us who especially the five of us who you know, have experienced white privilege through our lives, we don't like to be uncomfortable. Mm. I'm trying not to lump everyone into the same group, but 
I mean, you know, that's part of the issue is that comfort level. As we discussed in the last episode, you know, one of the things I try to do is to help other white males realize that you're going to be uncomfortable, Um, especially, you know, talking about with the Bible, you know, some people of faith, when you look at some of the messaging in there and you have this, I remember when I started the Bible, my Bible study a couple of years ago and started reading through it and uh, got into the part in, uh, what was it, in Genesis where, who was it, Tamir? Was it like Tamar. her, Tamar, Tamar, I guess her, her husband, father her initial husband. Yeah. Father-in-law made her marry someone else. And then the sons kept pulling she, out. She married one son. He died. Therefore right. by Leverett marriage, she marries his brother. He died. And then there's still one more son, but the father doesn't want to give. <laughs> right. It's like, you killed my other two sons. didn't kill, but they've died with you. So I don't want to give you right. my third son. And she's like, dude, just kind of sitting here waiting for you to figure yourself out yeah and but then, it gets into yeah. even in the scriptures it gets into like the sexual encounters well yeah she right? then prostit she prostitutes herself um so that she can sleep with her father-in-law so that he can realize that he has round wronged her right that's the best part of the story is when when word gets out that she's had a child out of wedlock and he goes that whore how dare she I'm going to have her killed. And she's like, hey, guess what? The father is the guy who owns this staff. And he's like, ah, man, that's my staff. (laughs) I'm actually the worst one because I'm supposed to be like his wife just died. And he's out here like sleeping with with other women, you know, and. But I get my point was when I was reading that part, I remember thinking to myself, I didn't realize that kind of stuff was in here. Um, (laughs) Like. You know, that's just not the stuff you ever hear about is is as, you know, Kendra's example from her favorite verse. I mean, people don't realize when people talk about, you know, the Bible, as I think, Zach, you talked about earlier, that there's this this flowery stuff and everything and there's nothing bad or whatever people will say or just cherry pick the goods. And and then when you hear about the other stuff and that's in there, too, you're like, wait, that's not in there. And then when, when I pointed out people, they're like. Oh, and so to me, with my curiosity, it makes the Bible even more interesting, but it just shows that, you know, we've sugarcoated it. We've whitewashed it into what makes us feel good about ourselves and comfortable. And if anyone tries to show something that is goes against our messaging, it makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about it. Right. And we want to slow it down. Right. Yeah. But this is this is one of my favorite parts of Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Yes. Yeah. Let 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 Rachel do. Rachel, you go. I'm cutting you off, Zach. No, go ahead, Zach. Are you about to read the same part that I'm about to read? I don't know. So I was read it at the same time. It was. It's probably not the same one. But I was about to reference the exact same part because Ian was talking about tension, and Dr. King is talking about I have no issue with tension. So I don't know if that's the same part that you were going to not quite to to read. Okay, so let me just finish this thought and then we'll get to your paragraph. And for anyone that hasn't had this memorized, we're obviously going to link all these things in the show notes. So please read them. Um, So this um, this part that Dr. King is talking about in his letter from Birmingham jail is talking about. Um, nonviolent direct action seeks to create a crisis and foster attention. 
that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks it seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. This very much going into Tamar's story that Ann just shared. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of nonviolent register may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. So I, you know, that I think you're right, Ian, that we we are nervous about tension, but you know, maybe we shouldn't be. All right. So, Zach, which which paragraph were you going to look at? Well, he was in that jail uh, writing that letter. He was writing that letter to a a consortium of preachers who yep. had spoken out against his actions. Um, and as with, you know, a good portion of the New Testament and so many wonderful works of theology that are written from jail, from people who have spoken out against systems of oppression and have been persecuted for it. He did some amazing theology in there. Amazing. And everyone needs to read this all the time. So, well, and it was fascinating. Sorry, to, sorry real quick, uh, if you don't mind, Zach. No. It was just fascinating to reread it yesterday. I'm certain I've read it before, but not with the same lens, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, how much of it is so, so salient? About oh my gosh, it was so fascinating of- to read it now. Mm-hmm. And, and I was taking notes on just saying, okay, this mirrors exactly what we're seeing now. This mirrors exactly. I mean, it was just so amazing to me. Oh, and how many memes I see on Facebook that are like, Dr. King was exactly. nonviolent and he changed the world. And Dr. King would have never done this. And they post memes that say like, I choose love, not hate. Only love casts out. Like, they're, like there's like four quotes. Yeah. Of yeah. Dr. King that we love to post every single time there's some kind of any anytime somebody speaks out against racial injustice, we love to quote like four parts of Dr. King that that are like, hey, stop being so mean and everyone should love each other. And <laughs> what the part that blows my mind is so many of them are taken from this letter. And this also is in this letter. He says, first, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Who constantly Mm -hmm. says, I agree with you on the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than the absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright outright rejection. And I never see that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it re- There's no meme on that one, huh? Right. It I reminds. Yeah. It reminds me that you know, in some ways, I probably still fit that mold. But as I said for the last in the last episode, that to me the important thing is is recognizing. That yes, I used to definitely fit that mold, and in some sometimes I still do. But I recognize that and insist within myself to move past that, to 
recognize that's that's where I was. That's where sometimes my mind may naturally go to, but that's not enough. That's not good enough. Right. Yeah. And so that's where I am in this process. Is, and yes, reading that letter again, very carefully last night. And actually there's uh, what I, what I really liked is there was a website I found where it, it may either have been Dr. King or someone else read it while I was reading it too. So I was listening to it and reading it. So I was able to feel like I could absorb it more. And it was just so interesting how much of that letter resonates with what we're seeing now, mm-hmm. you know, and, and talk about the uncomfort. And it made me think about within all of these tragic shootings and police brutality, you'll see people in their and protesting blocking interstates and, and major you know, thoroughfares. And, and then other people, I'm just trying to get to work. This is uncomfortable or, you know, it's making them uncomfortable. It's an inconvenience for them. Right. And it's, like you're you're missing that's the point of it is yeah. to inconvenience you so you wake up and actually maybe do something ellie Wiesel said the opposite of love or excuse me the opposite of hate is not love but indifference mm-hmm. how much i think fits fits this pretty well and the purpose of religion since that's sort of what we're we're looking at today and i'll, I'll find the exact quote i just i always just remember parts of it religion is there to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable Right. That if we if we really are relying on religion and scripture and everything that holds up religion, then it's our job to make people uncomfortable. But I uh, so yes, I I completely agree. Now, to me, the, the the question is 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 really one of how how willing we are to follow through on said structures of resistance, right? And and and. To my mind, right, the, the the really critical question is, what does that do to our sacred texts, right? Mm. If if that's where we started, right, sort of pulling out these favorite verses of sacred texts, to my mind, what what becomes really challenging about these sentiments, uh, about these 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 crucial sort of, I I, I want to say, I, I don't want to say this pejoratively, but I also want to say, like, right, like we we continue to go back to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s for these texts. And I kind of want to say, well, but there, there are a lot that have been written recently too, right? Um, in, in, in terms of pressing this issue, which is to say that the, the process of recognition, the process of making visible that these texts like King's classic from Letter from a Birmingham Jail force us to, to wrestle with are ongoing. Mm-hmm. And in that nature of being ongoing, they press us to persistently both reinterpret and rethink our sacred texts. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, what's helpful about like what Rachel's pulling from Wiesel, right, is is this idea that there's there's now a criteria by which a text no longer is sacred. That I think is an inverse. I don't think it's the intention of the statement, but I think it is a way to use that um, in a really, really helpful way, right? It, when our text no longer presses us to see the invisible, to see the person who has been put out of our 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 view on the world, has that text lost its quality as sacred? And I think. To my sort of sense of working with students in the classroom, 
we, we don't like to ask that question. And it is a really, mm-hmm. really uncomfortable Hard. question, right? It's an uncomfortable question for me, right? Like I, I, I look at it and I go like, to, to, like when we started with what's our favorite Bible verse, I, I sort of jokingly said, I don't have any, but like three that I know. And I think a large part of that is because the Bible's not very sacred for me. It, it very rarely operates for me as a window onto seeing those I don't see. Not because it can't and not because it doesn't for a lot of people. I understand that. But for me, it doesn't. Except in very rare circumstances or with a ton of sort of hermeneutical work and <laughs> loopholes that I need to sort of put in place in order to make it do that. At which point I want to say, I'd rather just read Ebony Marshall Terman <laughs> and and use that as a as a sort of contemporary sacred text. Um, or, you know, I'd rather read James Baldwin. And let that be the sacred text for my day and time. Much as I love Paul, I don't really love Paul. That's not true. Uh, but much <laughs> as I love stories about Jesus and things Jesus said, uh, right? Like, I, I, like, I, I, but that's a hard thing to hear. And that's a very tricky notion of religion to get people on board with. You know what was really helpful for me in rediscovering a sacredness to the sacred texts was Abraham Heschel's Prophets. Oh, yes. That book changed my life. I rediscovered this burning spirit in those Hebrew prophets that reinterpreted so much of the scriptures for me. And I started to read the early church in light of those that prophetic tradition that they were picking up the mantle of in many ways and trying to speak in the same sorts of ways and really getting to the prophetic heart uh, just it helped me to put legs on on a, a a sacred text that quite frankly had become entirely too sanitized i think i'm this idea of sacredness um I, I'm just coming at this from a slightly different angle, and maybe I'm wearing Jewish colored glasses. Um, <laughs> I would like those glasses, by the way. Just, just Get out of there. <laughs> we hold the Tanakh, the Bible, um, which is the Torah, the writings, and the prophets, to be sacred. But then we also hold this other compendum, which I've talked about, the Talmud to be sacred and that's that's like 50 books and then everything that went around those two books and everything since those two books is still also sacred it's just a level of you know how sacred we're all equal except some are more equal than others um it's so <laughs> spoken like a founding father <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um, i just love that it's with pigs too um mm-hmm. So so when I read a text and I think, again, minus extreme fundamentalism, I, I, I just have to put that out there, right? That, that I don't speak for extreme fundamentalist Jews. I don't I don't speak for all Jews. I just speak for for my understanding of Judaism with my lens and and anything that you deal with fundamentalism, you just kind of got to throw out the window, everything else. So with that caveat aside, we don't take it literally. 
and we don't we don't rely just on the 300 pages of Torah or the 1200 pages of what some might call the Old Testament that we rely on the 2,900 pages after that and the 10,000 pages after that to understand what is this talking about. So when we read a very uncomfortable verse, we can read so from 3,000 years, 2,000 years, 500, and now, and they're all equally valid readings given where we are. And that's how we understand what is sacred and what is holy and how that holiness can fit in our own lives and constantly redoing this. There's um, there's this concept of Midrash, you know, uh, Jewish fanfic, basically. And it's been written for... A- <laughs> no, no, hold on. Wait, wait, stop. <laughs> I just, I just, I want to, I want to stop there because I, one, have not heard that before yeah. and uh, I don't know a whole lot about Minrash, but I've never but, heard of it referred but, to it. But Jewish that. fanfic is is clearly uh, going to be. We my... tried to do that in Christianity, but <laughs> just called it heresy and burned them all. <laughs> yeah. And we we put it up there on a pedestal. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Jewish fanfic. Um, and there's a couple of rabbis that are writing some modern day ones, bringing in the voices of those that are voiceless. Um, mid, it's called midrashic monologues, and it's just it's it's again taking that tension and living with that tension now. So rather than throwing it all out, rather than trying to figure out where it is, saying okay, and not just not just um, uh, not just exegesis, not just reading into the text what I want it to say, but but looking at it with the lens of now. So again, I know that that's. A little bit different than maybe your all's experience, all y'all's experience. Yeah, I feel like I can say this because I grew up Christian, but the tradition of midrash and just like debating and not taking everything literally. This is one of the reasons why Judaism is better than Christianity. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. I agree. I know we do this in Christianity, but like my first encounter of this kind of reading and critical engagement came through uh, encounters in the classroom with Hebrew Bible readings and professors and like tools of interpretation. And so obviously there is also a tradition of that in Christianity, but I just wanted to put it out there that it's like, I I think it's more, it's like more widespread and acceptable for that, that sort of um, mindset of debate and openness and back and forth in Jewish traditions. And I just think that's so beautiful. Well, that's illustrated in, in, uh, in, in Mark 7. There is this really uncomfortable back and forth, and I keep saying I want to write uh, a series of of Jesus fanfics, like continuing <laughs> adventures of Jesus of Nazareth or something, um, because there's just so many things that are so relevant today. But uh, Jesus is doing his thing in Mark in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is bouncing all over the place. It's written like a like a Greek play. He's just kind of like he's here, he's there, he's there, he's there. He's really busy and he's tired, so he goes to Tyre. T Y R E, the the city. But he got there immediately. Get away. 
Right. Immediately. <laughs> Immediately. Gets, that, that, that word shows up all the time. But, <laughs> so he gets there because he wants to get away, right? Like, so, like, so he's going, uh, essentially he's going camping because he's so exhausted. And he goes into this house and this Syrophoenician woman barges in because she hears that he's there and she's like my daughter is possessed by a demon and jesus is tired he's he's grumpy as he is in the gospel of mark from time to time that your english translations really don't get right and there's also this weird racial dynamic between the people of tyre and the people of galilee where in time Galilee was like the breadbasket, and whenever there was times of of famine and and war and pestilence, the people of Tyre would regularly raid the people of Nazareth in order to steal <laughs> from them. And so Jesus grew up in this place where the people of the the Syrophoenicians are not good people; they are the oppressors. Very directly, he probably grew up. There were probably times where he didn't have food and he said, mommy, why can't we eat? And she would have to say, well, sorry, the Syrophoenicians took our food. And so this woman barges in. The power dynamic is switched. And Jesus says to her, be healed for your faith. No, he doesn't say that. He says, it is not right to, for the, to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Whoa. Which... Preachers will love to say that the word here that's used is like little dogs, and it's a term of endearment for the little doggies that, no, the, the little word for female dog has always been offensive. It's in the Odyssey. <laughs> uh, um, like, it has always been an offensive term. Jesus is being offensive. He's upset, and he calls this woman a dog, and she responds to him by further, by by humbling her, herself and meeting him in this dialogue and says, um, well, even the dogs pick up the food that's been dropped off the table. And he goes, huh. You know what? Hmm. Because of your faith, the demon has left your daughter and she left. So Jesus like flips this narrative. He's called out, essentially. He responds really offensively. He's called out on it. And then changes his mind and responds differently. And this is, in the Gospel of Mark anyway, his first interaction with a non-Jewish person. And he responds pretty uh, badly, I'd say. <laughs> and then is called out and then changes. And then from that point on, he has, there's all these wonderful encounters with Samaritans and with Greeks and with people from all over the place. And there's this great growing moment. Now, preachers will love to sanitize this part and they'll say, you know, he's testing the faith of his disciples by calling her that because he's going to call out their racism or Jesus knows better. He's testing her faith. But these are all just these hermeneutical ways that we can sanitize Jesus and not make him a real person who's really situated with real prejudices, really implicit biases that were a part of the radical departure from divinity that if Christians who believe in, you know, Jesus being a human have to kind of go with. And so there's this dialogue that leads to transformation within the Bible itself and within this story. And I see stories like that, and I'm like, I want to keep writing stories like that because that's a part of our tradition yeah. to be met with our biases and then to respond in kind. 
just to circle back a little bit to our conversation on Dr. King, because mm-hmm. I think it's relevant to these um, stories of scripture and these means of debate and back and forth about what a scripture passage actually means. I think Mm -hmm. when we look at the writings of Dr. King and the legacy of Dr. King, something similar is happening. And, you know, you, I think there's a, I think it's legitimate to call the writings of Dr. King a a scripture in their own way, in that more um, Mm -hmm. traditional notions of scripture in religious traditions. Dr. King's writings were radical and transformative for the people who were oppressed and also very controversial. Like I think the the passage that Zach read about the white moderates is the one that I also was going to bring up because I think it is perfectly illustrates how we, I mean, Americans, we have a really bad memory when it comes to our history anyway, but I think mm-hmm. we like to talk about how Dr. King was just this like idealized figure that everybody loved when actually, no, in his own Mm -mm. time, he was seen as radical by white people and white people were not as like loving towards Dr. King as white people love to be today. um, When we quote, you know, passages about love and not hate and, you know, like that's all like, I, I get that. I get where that's coming from. But it just, I think that those conversations speak to someone like Dr. King, who was influential and was writing something that was hard hard to swallow for people in his time. But now we're able to sort of take for granted that, like, <laughs> we all love Martin Luther King Jr., when even that's not true now. But there's this legacy of like controversy and interpretation. And I think that's also true when we look at scripture. There are things we take for granted today, like this passage means this, it's straightforward. It says right there, but when you dig into the history and the legacy of uh, a passage and how it has been interpreted from the original language into our English translations, like this a similar process of controversy and debate about how a passage speaks to the moment is alive and it's not something that is totally static. And I think maybe that's the -hmm. way that I would feel comfortable answering that question about like what makes something sacred or um, I can't remember how exactly, I think Adam put the question, what makes something sacred or what makes something scripture? Um, I think that that there has to be this quality of aliveness to it and it's dynamic. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's possible for those texts um, or figures to be transformative and radical for the people who are um, experiencing oppression in a variety of ways in their own historical moment. This has been episode 47 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Hey, have you joined the Down the Wormhole Conversations Facebook group yet? You really should. We'd love to get to know you better. There's a link in the show notes along with links to further reading and contact information. Also, a big thanks to all our supporters on Patreon whose generous donations make this podcast possible. And hey, if you're listening to this episode before July 31st, would you do us a huge favor and vote for our podcast on the People's Choice Podcast Awards? There's a link in the description with all the details. And tell your friends. This sort of thing really helps us to spread the word about this work that we all feel so passionately about. 
hey, we've got some really special episodes and events coming up the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned. <laughs>